Hi, and welcome to the Celeste Stein Show. I'm your host, Dr. Celeste Stein, and you're in for a very revealing look at racism from the ears and eyes of a retired Metro Nashville police officer who's going to tell his story today. Officer Miller is currently the Nashville chapter president of the National Black Police Association. He has also served as the regional and national president of the organization and continues as part of the board of directors. He was a Metro police officer for 28 years and also served on the FBI Violent Task Force as a task force manager and officer. He has received numerous awards for his community service and distinguished service throughout his career. I'm delighted to welcome Officer Miller to the show today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Celeste. I appreciate you inviting me to the show today. Yes, and in addition to Officer Miller, we also have communication expert Lisa Mitchell. Lisa is a certified forensic interviewer and has spent her career working with Fortune 500 companies and business leaders around the world, teaching them necessary communication skills to drive greater results across organizations. Her expertise allows her to work with executive leadership to communicate with confidence, negotiate results, and pack more power into their presence. She has also mastered the power of body language and can certainly help us in unpacking the biases each of us brings to the table due to our upbringing and surroundings. Thanks so much for joining us, Lisa, and helping us to better understand unconscious biases that we all have. I want to begin by having you to explain unconscious bias from your perspective. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Celeste. I uh, appreciate being part of this conversation. And unconscious bias at its root is really a, a series of beliefs or thoughts or opinions that we hold internally that inform how we interact with people, our opinions on certain things, and really, in some cases, a level of safety that we feel. And the thing about unconscious bias is it's it's something, or, or implicit bias, is something that we aren't even in our consciousness aware of. It's not something that we claim. It's not something that we decide on. It's, it's something, a, a set of values and opinions that we've been um, that we've adopted over our life experiences, over the external things that, that we have either seen or experienced or heard throughout our lives. And everyone has implicit bias and unconscious bias. It, it doesn't make you bad. Um, it doesn't mean you've done anything wrong. It's just something that we intrinsically need to, to look at how do we show up in situations and what's really driving how we're showing up in the room with, with certain people and in certain situations. Because it's... Yeah. Until you start looking for it, you don't always know exactly what's driving your behavior or your thought patterns. Right. It's so important. I think I would agree that we have to acknowledge that it exists because a lot of times people think if it, if it isn't consciously spoken about that it's not there, but it is. And so um, I kind of want to get into with you asking about kind of how you got into uh, your profession and really um, wanted to know, you know, if you personally experienced uh, racism growing up uh, in your own life. Well, what's interesting is I, um, as far as why I'm doing what I'm doing now is I used to be really bad at communicating. Um, (laughs) I wasn't clued in at all to what people weren't telling me. Um, I wasn't interested in, in looking further or asking questions, and I was really bad about verbalizing and articulating and communicating both verbally and non-verbally what I needed in different areas of my life. And um, I, 
paid a pretty heavy financial and personal price for not cluing in and, and not focusing more on developing communication skills, especially the the detective type skills of, of what maybe aren't people telling me or maybe what have I not, what am I not challenging myself on or acknowledging for myself? And so I, I really found that the, the study of communications, especially nonverbal, especially kind of the, the internal human behavior driven psychology part of communication was really just incredibly powerful, both to understand about myself and to be able to help people understand and fell in love with it. It's, it's a great equalizer. Um, learning this isn't particularly complicated and you don't have to have a college degree. You don't have to come from a certain socioeconomic background. And I really, I teach, teach the same thing to third graders that I do to CEOs. It's all about how are you understanding this and how does it help you with whatever you're walking into in life. And I'll tell you, you, you ask about kind of my upbringing and what I've experienced. I grew up in a very small town in Northwest Ohio. Um, my high school was small. I only had uh, two families in our entire school system that were minorities. And um, it just wasn't even something that I had a lot of awareness of growing up. Um, my family is, is law enforcement legacy. My great-grandfather was a police officer. My grandfather drove me to school in the back of his police car. He was police chief in our town. But um, it, growing through that and, and what I, and, you know, we've had conversations around this is um, I also know that, again, just for, for the era that my family was raised in and the way they were raised, my, my grandfather and I had a lot of conflict around just the, the racist views that he held and some of the language he would use. And um, we had a lot of conflict, especially in my high school years of just things that weren't acceptable to me. Um, and now looking at the broader scope, it, it really has challenged me, especially lately, to think about how did that impact the community with him in a position of power, of, of him being a law enforcement officer and, um, you know, seeing what's happening now and, and, and the pain and misunderstanding and just um, really devastating things that are happening in the behavior. It, it challenges me to think about what, what, what legacy does my family have in that story? Um, and, and how can I, knowing what I know now and having the understanding that I have now, how can I continue to be part of the conversation to bring awareness? Some of, some of the people that I, you know, went to school, some of my family has never experienced a broader worldview. They haven't interacted with a lot of diversity. They haven't traveled much or, or heard stories of other people's experiences. So I just, I'm, I'm starting to really challenge myself more. How can I, how can I challenge that thinking? How can I broaden those perspectives? And, um, you know, how can I just be a better ally? Right. That's so important. I mean, we have to open dialogue and I can't tell you how important as a communications professional myself and having an expertise in communication, we cannot close doors. We have to begin to open doors and really begin to talk about um, these experiences or we'll never heal. Yeah. Uh, from them. So I, I agree and I commend you uh, certainly for what you're doing. I wanted to um, switch gears and talk a little bit, have uh, Officer Miller, uh, thanks again for joining me today. Um, Officer Miller, um, you really have an interesting story. Um, he was serving as a Metro police officer in the greater Nashville area and ended up making national news headlines following a brutal beating by his well, uh, white fellow police officers. And at the time, I was a news reporter myself for the ABC affiliate in Nashville. And I remember 
uh, being assigned to cover this story. And I remember people sort of being in shock and disbelief that this could happen to a police officer at the hands of his coworkers. Um, and it was right around the time, as I recall, of the Rodney King uh, beating. And it really seemed to stir up a lot of feelings of anger uh, within the Black community. And so today, I just wanted to, to give you the opportunity to kind of tell your story and, and uh, tell us what happened that day so that we can hopefully learn you know, from your experiences and others' experiences and, and hopefully, again, move on and, and heal from some of the, the things that, you know, are longstanding within uh, our, our culture and society. Well, thanks again for having me on the show, Celeste. Um, Absolutely. My pleasure. I'm, I'm happy to have you. And I do think that when we talk about these types of issues, just like Lisa stated before, it's about communications. It's about trying to understand what happened and how do we fix it? Not to uh, make it seem like this didn't happen, but right. to deal with what did happen. Um, my incident occurred back on December 14th, 1992, when I was assigned to work an undercover assignment on a prostitution sting. Uh, I was given a set of keys to a vehicle to drive that evening. It was a blue truck. Uh, unbeknownst to me, that truck had expired tags on it. Uh, I was working in the same area that I have roll call every day with all the officers. Matter of fact, we had roll call that, that day uh, with the same officers. Um, as I proceeded down one of the streets and saw a young a female coming my way, I got on my radio and told my sergeant, I think I might have one. I'm going to approach her and see uh, you know, what's going on. But before I got there, uh, I got pulled over. I was getting pulled over. And I pulled over. I pulled over under uh, a big old light because I saw the guy that was pulling me over. I recognized who he was. And I was like, okay, what's the problem? But for a moment, I didn't know whether or not he was just uh, messing with me or what because I had no idea why I was being pulled over. Uh, but as I pulled over, um, actually his car and three other cars zoomed in on that one car on the vehicle that I was driving. My supervisor was uh, sitting about 50 feet away. Him and another detective was sitting about 50 feet away. And uh, when the officer approached my vehicle, he, um, he pulled me out at gunpoint. He didn't ask me for driver's license. He didn't ask me for any proof of ownership, uh, anything. Just jerked the door open, grabbed my arms off the steering wheel, and put a gun to the in the, to the back of my ear and start pulling me out of the vehicle. At that time, I proceeded to go to the ground. Uh, one, of the, one of the other guys started to choke me. Another guy grabbed my other arm and was pulling it back like it was a fishbone. Uh, I actually felt a, a knee drop down in my back. I felt, felt my eyes being gouged. Somebody just stuck their fingers in my eyes and just started to gouge my eyes while I'm being choked. And then at then the later part, uh, someone came up and started kicking me in my groin three times, uh, very, very hard. Uh, by this time, my supervisor, uh, who was white at the time, ran down and pushed all the officers off of me and said, that's police, that's police. And um, there was a, a young white female sitting at a red light watching all of this unfold. And she was crying and she came over there and, and asked them, why were y'all beating on him? 
And their response was, well, we were doing a reenactment of a Crime Stoppers, so you need to go on about your merry way. Hmm. And so why this is so very important uh, for me is because of the dynamics of it. Um, it allows me to speak on the role and the responsibility of a police officer. It allows me to speak on the fears of just being a black man. And it also allows me to talk about the unjust uh, things that happen in, with police brutality. So there's three kind of different perspectives of how I can kind of talk about this. So really, I, I talk from different versions so that you get a better understanding of how it feels, whether you're a police officer, whether you're a black man, or whether you're just a victim of brutality. Um, I know that, you know, as I mentioned, I was, I was actually working and, and I was called to cover that story the very next day. And I remember um, one of the things we heard internally uh, was that um, your officers didn't recognize you because you were working undercover. Do you, do you believe that? Or was that, was that true? That's, that's not true because if I walked up to your vehicle, I would say to you, oh, hey, Celeste, because I would know you. So it's not the fact that you, I didn't have on a mask. I didn't have on anything that would make you not know me. Matter of fact, we just got out of roll call mm. probably about 30 minutes oh. prior to that. Okay. So <laughs> if you're going to say that you didn't know me, mm. then we have a problem. Yeah, a and, real big and, problem. And because of that, uh, the Metro Police Department here in Nashville did, did not have a diversity um, program. They, they were not doing diversity training. This incident actually started diversity training for Nashville. Now, I would dare say that I don't believe that I was the first Black officer that that really happened to. I just think that I'm the first Black officer who stood up and said it. I think that most of the time you will be told, hey, man, take, you know, we're sorry, we didn't know. And you kind of go along with that and you take, you know, they give you two or three days off. Say, man, just take a little time off because they don't want you to know what is really going on, that, that uh, atmosphere of what's going on in, that com in the community. And, and, and sometimes just the officers that aren't doing the right thing. Sometimes we just have bad officers. You know, so, and, but training, um, the training is going to be the, one of the most important things that we can do uh, for officers if we're going to start trying to fix these issues and fix these problems. There has to be some training. And uh, Lisa brought up a, one of them that I, I specifically uh, talk about all the time, which is implicit, that implicit training, diversity training, sensitivity training, and implicit training. And we have to have that communication that it does exist, but how do we fix it? Right. I mean, this is a, a, a deeply ingrained uh, issue um, and one that I don't think can be fixed, certainly with a few trainings. I mean, this is something that obviously is very serious and has to be ongoing. But what do you think about uh, com community policing? Because one of the things that I learned as a, as a journalist and covering our communities uh, for many years um, the way in which people react when they are pulled over by the police, there, there, there needs to be some education to that. But as we can see, sometimes we're following or certainly following all the rules, 
and um, they're still mistreated. So, you know, what do you see? Do you see community policing playing a valuable role here? You know? I would definitely say, I mean, there's so much involved with this because we're in a we we're in a national crisis. We have to really understand we're in a national crisis in law for law enforcement in in this country, um, and the and and this crisis is is at a tipping point. Now, true enough, the paradigm has shifted some because of the all of the uh, protests and marches and everything that's going on, and you're yeah. seeing some unprecedented people standing up. You're seeing some unprecedented people coming out. You're seeing, so I do think that the paradigm is actually changing in our favor. Um, and part of this is just to, um, to help, it's more than just that, that march, it's the modifications for equity and diversity uh, and inclusion. Uh, the police has been, has been given an oath to protect and serve. That's our oath. And who do we serve? We serve the community. And unfortunately, in a lot of police departments, pol community policing no longer exists, which is, which is such a crazy thing because that's who we serve. There used to be a time where we could go and sit down with Miss Jones on the corner and have a cup of tea with her who can tell me everything that's happening on the corner with little Johnny who is stashing dope, who, who the players are but we don't do that anymore. We have taken community policing out of, and so that's why you have this attitude that there is us against them. You have this militaristic uh, uh, viewpoint from coming from the police and where we're supposed to be guardians. We have failed, we have failed the community. Honestly, we failed the community. Because we're not community policing. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. There are, are some people doing some good things in the community and, and some really good officers out there. However, if your police department don't start it from the top and say, this is what we're going to do. We're going to have community engagement. And I'm going to allow you to be able to go out there and play basketball with one of the kids that you see out there. We want you to get involved. But if it doesn't start from the top, those officers who don't care about this particular community, they're not going to get out there and play basketball when they see a little young or throwing the football with some young kid to make a difference in their life. It's not going to happen. So right. we have to make that change, but that change comes, it's so important for the, for the president to be set from the top so that it rolls down to the bottom. And a lot of police departments, and I'm going to say, even including this one, it's not happening. It's not happening. We could do a better job. So I'm going to say we have failed the community. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, very valid points that you raised there, Officer Miller. Um, and, and I think, you know, as we look at what has happened, um, you know, with the killing of George Floyd, of course, um, at the hand of a knee of a Minneapolis police officer, you know, this certainly is something to me that's been boiling, you know, uh, for a while. He just happened to be the the catalyst that kind of set off the the anger, you know, that we're seeing, you know, over over his mistreatment and and many many others. Um, I want to um, ask Lisa really quick 
What do you think is going on here in terms of, of, of an un unconscious level with people? Why is this happening now all of a sudden? Yeah, I think that's such a great question. And it, from an unconscious bias standpoint, what's really interesting is that a lot of times um, our unconscious bias does not align with what we believe like our own beliefs to be right and and so the example i use and i've i've been walking into these conversations lately around if you would have sat down and had breakfast with any of the officers involved in the george floyd case and said can you picture any circumstance where you would be involved in this type of thing right if you were like hypothetically right is there ever a circumstance that you can that you could put yourself in that would justify you being part of this type of behavior Mm -hmm. No, right? right? Because we don't we don't know it. We are not consciously aware of our threshold of some of our beliefs of some you know in some cases anger or or hatred or um you know whatever spurs that type of activity when we get put in that moment and and make that decision point. And so I think it's one of those things where you can't ask people what they believe they're capable of right? It's, it's, it's similar to why, well, I would never sign a false confession. It's like, well, under the right psychological conditions, yeah, you probably would. And given misinformation, yeah, you, you might actually do that, right? But we, we can't, under normal circumstances, kind of imagine that we would ever participate in something like that. And so I think it's, it's having, coming to that with, without accusation uh, and without a, a kind of negative connotation and just having a very valid conversation that, that yes, you have this, right? Like step one is just a, admitting that you are capable of having this, this bias in, internally, right? Mm -hmm. And step two is kind of removing judgment around that. Again, it, you're not a bad person for having unconscious bias. You're a bad person for not acknowledging that you have unconscious bias and then acting in ways that, that are detrimental to other people. So I think it's, yeah. it's really having a, a, a conversation at all levels of like, this is just something that is like, we all have it. It doesn't make you, it, you're not a good enough person to not, to not have this issue to have to work through. So now knowing that there is more below the surface and things that are going to show up outwardly in your behavior that are going to have negative uh, impacts to other people, what tools, what awareness can we help bring? How can we give you a series of, of uh, moments and steps and processes where you can say, hey, like, why am I showing up in this situation the way I am? And what can I do to change the course of what might happen based on my, based on my unconscious bias? So if you aren't even taking the moment to pause and give yourself um, the opportunity then to make a conscious decision, that you're going to just be led by something that that's kind of internally. And that's not excusing behavior. We're not powerless against it. We have a lot of power against it to choose our behavior and to choose our interaction and choose how we communicate. But you have to be willing to, to take that pause and say, okay, where is, where is this reaction coming from in me? And what can I do now that I'm consciously aware that this is not beneficial behavior that I can then pick a different direction or pick a different course of action or interact with this person in a different way. Yeah. But one thing, one thing I would like to address with, with officer Miller, there are times when obviously officers are in a position where they, they almost have to use deadly force. 
And so I'm sure there, there are often times that you may have been in a very tight position. Uh, can we talk about that from the police officer standpoint? I think a lot of times the public is not necessarily aware that you have seconds, you know, sometimes a nanosecond to react uh, when you're dealing with someone that, that may have a, and, you know, maybe has a drug problem or, uh, you know, maybe coming at you with a knife or, you know, who knows. So uh, are there times where you think that uh, deadly force, you know, must be used? You know, let's talk about that within the, the training, because that's going to be something, obviously, that comes up. Okay, uh, I, we can definitely talk about that. I do want to make a mention. Um, when it comes to the George Floyd incident, though, I, I have to be perfectly clear. Mm -hmm. uh, that was a total abuse of power that was showing this is what I can do to you and there's nothing that you can do about it. Mm. Yeah. This, is what, this is what black people have been saying for years. Cause see, this is not new. This is not a new phenomenon, not at all. Mm -hmm. This is what we've been saying. It happened to me in 1992 and here it is right. 2020. And the only thing about it is that we were able to catch it on video. Cause see, that's what's happening now. Everybody, everybody is catching it. And so what it is, is opening up the eyes. It's taking the blinders off a lot of people who thought, oh, no, you're just kind of talking. Or maybe he didn't hit you that hard. Or maybe it wasn't that bad. But now to sit there and let the whole world see a police officer who was sworn to protect and serve, sit there where you got three other officers, got a man handcuffed. He can't go anywhere. And you decide that you're just going to sit there with pressure on his neck, depriving him of air so that he will die. And with my hands in my pocket, like this is another day at the office. Yep. And, and it, was, it was the duty of the other police officers to even say, look, man, get off of him because we need to administer some type of medical help to this guy because he's in some type of dis medical distress. Right. So I, I'm glad to see that this will not go, as you can see the change. There, this is all America is talking about. It has to be changed. And yes. this, allowed, this allowed the whole America to see it. And so now that has caused this change, this paradigm of, of this movement, because not, now the, the white people, the people who sit at home, even some of the black people, see this whole thing because this was a humanity thing it wasn't it was it was a black thing but it was also a humanity thing to sit there and watch the air being being taken out of somebody and i can do this to you just because i'm a police officer oh that that should have struck the heart of anybody baptist methodist black white uh republican democrat it should have hit the heart mothers right daughters all of that so I'm really glad to see that his death will not go in vain, but though that officers and the rest of them should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Mm -hmm. And if we're going to make a change, it starts now. And it starts with incidents just like this because we witnessed it. But watch what I say. They're going to get in court and they're going to try to justify actions. And this is what happened. And this is the reason why we have, if we don't have a change because the court said, oh, there's nothing wrong or you didn't prove your case. 
and they go free. And this is why people will continue to protest. And unfortunately, they bring that out with anger. And that's why we ended up with sometimes things being tore up and not necessarily the peaceful protest. So I did want to get that out. Yeah. Uh, but your question was about um, deadly force. Deadly, we are taught in deadly force, when we go to the academy, we get about 80 hours of firearm training, 80 hours. We get about uh, two and a half months of law, because those are going to be some very, what you can do and what you can't do, so you don't get sued or you don't, or when to be able to use deadly force or not. For an officer to, re- to use deadly force, his life has to be, he has to be in fear of great bodily harm or death. Now, if someone is coming at you with a baseball bat, of course, that officer is going to defend himself. But when you have uh, uh, two officers there and you going, uh, most of the time, even hand to hand, you might have to pull out a baton. You might have to use a taser. However, deadly force in those types of situations, unless you pick up something that's going to cause you great bodily harm or death, that lethal force, which is de- uh, that deadly weapon, is the last thing on our, our continuum, a force of continuum, because it's, it starts and it goes up. And so in that case, uh, at the, the Wendy's case, there was two officers. They knew who he was. They had spent time with this guy. They had his car. He was, even if he was drunk, guess what? He, you knew who he was. You can go down, you can go down, take warrants out on him, and there you go. And life, we would have sustained life and not taken life. And th- th- once again, this is, what, this is what we're faced with. And the other point that I always bring out, I, why is it that black police officers and white police officers get the same training, but we're not getting the same result? Because you don't see black police officers shooting white guys in the back. You don't see black officers choking people out and killing them. You're not seeing that. However, they get the same training. So what is it that's causing the white officers to apply lethal force against blacks? It's a question. That's something that that I want to kind of address with Lisa because of the the unconscious bias issue. We think about like people like uh, Dylan Roof I was just like appalled. He he shot all those people. I mean, he was treated completely differently than I think someone black would have been treated. I'm going to be honest on that. Um, to see that when they had him in the elevator, there was a picture of him in a bulletproof vest and the people who were with him didn't have on a bulletproof vest. And so I, I was told and uh, I read articles um, that, you know, they went to get him something to eat. And I mean, you know, just a totally different scenario. I mean, what, what is going on, you know, when, when you see things like that, like. Yeah. Either. A lot of it is from, again, from an unconscious bias standpoint, it's perception of, of threat. Right. And so when, mm. if you think about kind of our, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right. Basic is, the, the basic baseline is, are those physical safety needs and our brain, yeah. right. And our, our brains, you know, there's an entire center in our brain whose only job is to assess threat and keep us alive. So we are constantly as, as mission one in the, in our, in our subconscious processing is we're always assessing threat. Is this person a threat to me? 
from a, a physical standpoint. And so when you have conditioning, whether it's environmental or it's from media or it's from past experiences or trauma that you've had, and you, your brain has created the shortcut of um, black equals dangerous to me, right? Mm -hmm then that center on a subconscious level is the first thing to start firing off alarm bells. Uh, rightly or wrongly, it doesn't necessarily individualize or take the time to look at all the context, which is so important when you're evaluating threat assessments and safety factors and, and just lots of ways that we evaluate people to on, based on how we're going to choose to interact with them. Our brains create shortcuts, all with good intentions of keeping us alive, where we then start assigning threat factors to people who are not presenting a threat to us, right? And that's, that's one of the dangerous side effects of unconscious bias. It's part of the dangerous side effects of our brains trying to help us out by creating shortcuts that keep us in safe situations or help us address threats is that in, in the rush to keep us safe, we assign unfair qualities or unjust qualities to other people as threats. And if, if you don't, know about that if, if you don't realize that that's what your brain's doing you're always assigning threat qualities to people and circumstances that do not that do not pose a threat to you and then your behavior your outward behavior how you interact how you communicate how you continue to assess because then the other thing that kicks in is confirmation bias right so confirmation bias tells me if if my instinctual gut feeling about you is you are dangerous or you are a threat, or you may harm me, then confirmation bias starts having me collecting all the other evidence of why you are dangerous and why you are a threat to me, and discounting all of the other evidence that does not support that theory, right? Like there's a lot of complex things happening in people's brains yeah. and that then address our behavior, how we speak to someone, how we physically confront someone, how we position ourselves physically, and use our body language to communicate with that person that whether we trust them or we don't trust them, which can then trigger escalation in fear and confrontation from the person across from us. Like if, if you are not educated on this type of processing that is happening universally across the board in every human that you meet, and you're just going out and acting on your feelings or your behaviors or what you know, you don't have a shot and hell of being accurate most of the time because you are being ruled by things that you are not objectively then challenging and assessing before you act. And that is a very dangerous set of circumstances for anyone. And again, good intentions, your brain's trying to keep you alive, right? right? But if you're not pausing and you're not looking at context and you're not, you're not individually evaluating people and circumstances, you run a big risk of being ruled by your past experience and your unconscious bias. And that is not, it's not fair, first of all. And I don't like to use that word because life's not fair, but it, it really isn't. Um, it, the idea of being objective, I think is invalid because we all have bias. So it's just to what level of subjective or bias are you willing to operate? And if yeah. you do not check and you do not challenge you're going to be at the mercy of whatever level of bias you carry with you. Yeah. And that, that's if, very if, dangerous you know, and it's very harmful. Yeah, if, if that is though basic and instinctual in people, I mean, I, I love to hear about what you do. How are you able to actually change that behavior? That's the one thing they say is really hard to get someone to do. That's why it's so hard to lose weight and stuff like that because 
changing a behavior. Oh my goodness. And one that's been around this long. I mean, how, how are you able to, to actually pull that out of people? It's just, you know, I'm just fascinated by that. And, and if you could explain, you know, what steps do you have to take to actually, you know, work with people within companies, police departments, et cetera, to actually get them to, to turn this corner here? Yeah, it's, it's difficult because it's kind of an, an unseen, it's an unseen driver of a lot of our external behavior. And, mm-hmm. and, and you cannot fix a problem that you are not aware of. So step one is awareness, like judgment-free awareness. Like we need, I need you to understand and to take ownership of the fact that this is something that you inherently have, mm-hmm. right? Which some people do willingly and are curious and want to learn and change. And some people are resistant because not, not me, I'm objective and I'm moral and I have integrity. Well, yes, you do. And you have unconscious bias. Right. Like like that's the the awareness (laughs) piece of it. And, and, and then helping people kind of understand, you know, neural pathways, or you think of it as as like a, like a racetrack in your brain, right? You get in a pattern of thinking or you have an experience and it creates a rut in your brain. And so your brain to be efficient because we're processing so much information just falls back in that rut. And that's reality until it's challenged and presenting new information education, bringing awareness, um, putting practical examples of of real tangible things people are walking into every day that either demonstrate and and provide evidence of their unconscious bias or let them evaluate it from a, as a third party perspective. But you're absolutely right. It is a, it is a very difficult thing to change someone's thinking. Anytime there's a neural pathway or a neural rut, like it's very difficult, but the first step really is just awareness and then having it done in an environment where we're okay owning it, right? It's, it's not something that's punishable because it's, it's not a, it's not a, a punishable offense to have unconscious bias. No one, no one is able to not have unconscious bias where it becomes very dangerous and where is when it's weaponized right? Where either it's left unchecked and you're allowed to perform a high responsibility law enforcement type of position without ever having to be aware of your unconscious bias or the concept of it and just being excused for all your behavior. Like that's where it gets dangerous and that's where it can actually, uh, it's not enough to be unaware. It actually becomes weaponized or can be harmful, right? And so not not understanding it. And this is a concept It's really just been the last couple of years, even as much as I've studied communication and, and brain and brain science is this acceptance for me, even that, Oh, I have unconscious bias. Cause we like to think we're in control. No, no, no. I'm, I control my own domain. I'm smart. I make my decisions. I'm rooted in my beliefs, right? I, I am in control. And to some degree you are, but how much, how much, credence and how much uh, reinforcement are you giving to fight against the things that you're doing automatically or unconsciously? Right. right. And, and so it's not, not an easy task. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a failure of, of you to have unconscious bias. It is, it's inevitable. Mm-hmm. It is a failure of you to not acknowledge that you have it and then proactively learn what your biases are and how can you thoughtfully change your behavior when you know those are being triggered. Yeah. We, we can't just run unchecked on autopilot. Like that's where, that's where it really can show up and be detrimental. Mm-hmm. 
Officer Miller, did you want to add something? Yeah, I see let me comment you. on that. I, yes. I, think, I think that all, and nothing against what Lisa's saying, that all sounds good in an environment where you're talking to CEOs of a company. In a police department, we don't, we don't have that luxury. Now, they do go through a psychological exam, and everything that Lisa's talking about should be done at that psychological exam to find out what type of police officers we, we have. The problem is, is that when you have officers who want to judge a man because he has braids or he's because his pants are down, that becomes your confirmation of your threat. Oh, he's a threat to me simply because he has braids, simply because his pants are down. And the problem is we're the recipients of, of that by getting beat down, shot, killed from that confirmation. And so that that bias is that bias is that is that fear or is that racism what is that there's a whole lot of things involved but we cannot continue to be the if that's the case then the psychological exam needs to be a week of psych, psychological exam before they come on that police department but once they get there we don't have we don't have there's that nothing. luxury we don't have that luxury to keep getting shot and killed because of, a, of, of their unconscious bias. We don't, we, don't, we, don't, we, don't, we don't have that luxury. We can't do that. And so if we're, going to, if we're going to change it, we have to call out the bad officers. We have to call out the racist officers. I had an incident once where I was still in training. We have a six-month training period where they can basically fire you for any reason at all. I had a white officer who was talking trash to a thug that we had in the back seat. We pulled down to a little dark area and the officer pulled his stick out and told me, hey, and I'm right, I'm the passenger because he's the driver and I'm on probation. And he tells me, hey, man, don't you have to go to the bathroom? And I was like, nope. And he said, yes, you do. Don't you have to go to the bathroom? And I said, nope, I don't. Then I said, okay, I do. So I get out the car, I come around the car and I lean on the back seat of the car. And I said, to get to this guy, you got to go through me. And I said, and I really don't think that that's what you want to do. Now, so what I'm saying was, I had, and I reported him to a supervisor hmm. right after that. Why? Because I have to call. So I knew if he was doing this to a thug in the back, that he started talking smack to this thug. This thug don't care that you're a police officer. Right. But I told him, if that's not going to happen. But we have bad police officers. Don't whether they're right, they're not used to. If, if you're afraid to be a police, then don't be a police. But what we, can, we can't have is you coming into our communities, beating up, destroying, arresting, taking out all our little young kids who are going to school, trying to be college graduates, because you have a fear of black people. I had some people, some officers tell me, I don't go into the projects, because that's what he called it. I said, let's call it low-income housing. Let's call it subsidized housing. Why has it got to be the project? Okay, just something to think about. But he said, I don't go in the project. Well, if you don't go in the project when, a, when you get a call for service and you're not going to project, you shouldn't be a police officer. And so I'm just saying, there are so many variables that we have to deal with. And if you're a black uh, 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 officer and your training officer is a white officer, what do you say? He's, control, he's in control of your evaluations. He can, can tell them, hey, look, he's not fit for duty. All of those things. We, we deal with so much of that. And then we get out into the community and we say, hey, look, come on and help us 
Uh, let's let's go do something in the community. Do you think that they want to go do something in the community? They don't. They don't care about that community. We have so many different variables that we deal with that it's not funny. And yeah. I'm telling wow. you, somebody needs to really sit down. I, I You can sit down with white police officers, but you need to sit down with black police officers too, and you will find out that if I stand up with the police department, I'm a sellout. If I if I uh, if I if I'm on the side of the community, then hey, we're not going to bag you up. It's a difficult position for black police officers. Period. Yeah. Wow. I you know getting back to like the community policing. I can remember I grew up in Washington D.C. and we had a program. They started with us like when we were in elementary school. And it was actually called the Officer Friendly Program. I don't know if anybody else remembers that, but that was a wonderful program that, you know, it brought the police officers in. You, They got to know the community and the community got to know them. But it wasn't just the police officers that were involved in, in the process. It was parents. If I did something wrong up the street from my house, my parents were getting a call, but I was getting in trouble up the street, on my way down the street, and at home. So, you know, that that has changed, you know, and I don't know if it's because people are moving around, people are more transient, you know, uh, moving from, from one place to another. But this is, this is something that we have to think about. Like, if you don't catch people when they're, when they're young, um, I think it becomes a much more difficult process to educate uh, because it's got to be education, in my opinion, on both sides. Um, and even having worked as a journalist, when we talk about bias, you know, that's something I realized early on. I started, you know, as as a journalist at the age of 17. So I was starting to interview people. And I realized early on that if you, you ask two people, uh, you know, to tell the story, they're both going to tell it from a different perspective. And why? Because we come to the table with a different perspective about, you know, what we see or what we experience based on, you know, that upbringing and who we are. So it's so important that we take the time to really get to know people. That's what it's about. And I think that's part of what's missing in this equation. But, you know, as we think about that, we also have to think about, you know, we have people coming out rioting, looting, uh, you know, trying to make a statement. While many of them were peaceful, we had people who who were totally counterproductive in this process. Um, is it, you know, going to take more than just people protesting? Because it seems like it's a cycle that repeats over and over again, but nothing really ever changes. So, but but this is the first time I'm seeing everybody kind of come out this first mm-hmm. time. And so that is a paradigm shift that I think we've never seen before. And people starting to acknowledge, yes, black lives do matter. Your life matters too. But but the this is a group of people that has been disenfranchised for many, many, many decades, uh, you know, centuries. <laughs> so mm-hmm. how do we begin to uh, bridge some of these gaps? you know, uh, in effect change or, you know, what, what's it going to take is my question, um, outside of protests. Lisa, I'm going to bounce that, that one off of you. What do you, what do you think it's going to take? Yeah, well, I think you're, you're exactly right. As far as it, you know, from a a systemic standpoint, as far as how we start assigning value to people and, and kind of back to assigning threat, like there's, there's studies like cross-cultural studies done where young children are presented 
with a black baby doll and a white baby doll and they're asked a series of questions around which one is nice, which one is good, why, right? And, and, and they're asked and, and it, it's really shocking that, I mean, these children are four years old, four to six years old in most cases in these studies and there are negative qualities assigned to the black doll baby. Right. right. Yeah. I remember that's Dr. Alvin Poussant's work in the black doll test. Yeah, very interesting. But yeah, that starts at a at a very young age. Right. And then you, yeah. you look at the experience that children are having in, in the education system currently, and you look at the studies that show the rates of discipline for black students versus white students or minority students versus non-minority students, right? And and there is a, a disproportionate by many, many percentage points higher incidence of that behavior by black students being seen as unacceptable or dangerous or threatening versus when a white student exhibits the same behavior, right? So, so there are some very strong early systemic indicators of perception of good and bad based on physical qualities, right? And, and so you, you have children that are being raised with these assigned values or the assigned threats, or these assigned discipline problems, and, and all of these things that are really not driven by, by quality or character or performance, but they're actually driven by perception. So when you look at, at points of intervention of the systemic point, right, I think, I think systems like education and the administration of disciplinary action and things like that are are not the solution, but they are definitely something that warrant investment and warrant change. Because when you're being told at, at third grade that you're a problem or that you don't belong in that classroom or you're hard to handle or you're different in a worse way from other students in, in the population, then you start to believe that Right. And then that behavior continues to follow you. That belief system continues to follow you. So from, from a systemic kind of root cause and er, just early, early introduction of the assignment of value, the assignment of behavior, the assignment of threat traits, right. And the stories that we believe. And I, I don't think at a young age, children are really given the opportunity to even examine their beliefs. Right. It's just, it, unless you have a good like social emotional learning program where kids are able to talk about responsibility and, and being a good being a good citizen, being a good classmate, qualities of integrity, where you start to kind of equalize that based on virtues and values versus perceptions and incorrect stories. It's, it's really difficult to even start to introduce the ideas of, of that why. Not just, oh, it just is, but why? Why do I believe it is this way? And you have to create a space for those conversations and that type of, of uh, you know, kind of guided reflection to be able to happen. And it needs to start at a really young age to start challenging some of these really deeply rooted and deeply held misconceptions. Officer Miller, I wanted to, to ask you if you kind of agree with that. And I, I don't know if you, you know, as we all have been watching the large uh, crowds gather in spite of the coronavirus pandemic, um, what are your thoughts about the, the huge gatherings? Is that something you think has to happen? Um, and, and is it really a good idea when they're, you know, experts telling us there should still be social distancing and, uh, people should be wearing masks, but we, you know, I'm seeing there's some people that aren't and that are ignoring that, you know, based on mixed messages, I think we, we've been getting from the top. 
Uh, okay, let me make a, uh, I want to make a comment on something she said. Um, I, when we talk about value, I think that is part of the problem. We have been, we've never really been considered to have value. We've had, we were considered to have three-fifths of value from, and we've been fighting that for years, ever since slavery, property, feeling like you were property and we can do whatever. We think, when we think we have made advancements in some areas, we find out that we're still being treated as though we have no value. And you can only take that so long of no value. I've, learned, I've seen on our police department, there's certain discipline for white officers and a different discipline for black officers. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Because our values are not the same. We're not as valued as much as they are. Mm-hmm. Men and women, like right now, we have one black captain, female captain, and no black lieutenants and two female sergeants. And, however, we make up over 25% of the popula- uh, population here. And we're less than 10% on the police department. We're not reflective of the community. And this is the problem. We're not valued. Value has gone out the window. Um, What we simply are trying to get into people's mind and heads is that police departments have to be accountable and they have to be transparent. That's what communities want. They want to be able you to be held accountable for what you do and transparent in the things that you are doing. And police departments are, are even around the world, but I speak here, we have a lot of work to do and change has to come. And unless we look at the word change, unless we look at the word change and want to make a change, we're going to still have this conversation this time next year. And we're still going to be talking about devalued people. That, this, these marches, are simply protests because they don't feel valued, because there isn't inequality. There is systemic racism. Admit that, and then let's work on it. But that is part of our problem. And I can guarantee you these marches are going to continue on until people feel valued, not just police officers, but police officers are the guardians. We're the guardians, and we're not guarding the community. We're letting letting them down. So I did want to say that. Yeah, such a value point. And just this whole conversation has brought so much insight into some of the issues faced um, by the police officers, by people in general. And and this has just been very eye-opening. And I hope we can continue this dialogue and and keep it open. Um, We're about out of time right now. This is all the time we have. Um, I'm your host, Dr. Celeste Stein. I thank you all so much for joining us and tuning in. Thank you so much for watching.